All right. Good morning. My name is Adam. Um, we are going to get going here with the message. We're just going to reiterate a lot of what we already heard through those songs and through those testimonies uh, here in the message here. Before I pray and get going, Bridge Kids, if you are going to Bridge Kids in the other rooms, you can go ahead and stand up and walk out that way right now, and we will get going. Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us this time. Thank you for giving us um, your power, your spirit to move in the room. We know that gathering together, you give us a particular fellowship together. So I pray for um, your spirit to move and for my words to fall flat. And I pray that we would approach your word um, discovering more of who you are, God, the truth that you've given us. Amen. All right, so we are in Colossians. We're going to continue in Colossians 1 today, just as a reminder. Um, Jerry's been out last couple weeks with back surgery. Um, he's recovering well, so much to the fact that he's here today. Super excited to see him walking around, sitting down, all that good stuff. So we're going to continue with where we left off last week. Before we get to the text here, um, I just wanted to describe something maybe you guys have, have come across in your life. You got to paint something. You got to paint something inside. You got to paint something outside. You got to paint something small. Maybe a big, broad wall. Maybe everyone in the room. Maybe, maybe half the room. Who knows? How many of you, we don't need to raise hands, but just put in your mind, last time you had to paint something. And my wife and I went through this a little bit. We're going to paint the outside brick of part of our house. And uh, I'm just thinking, you buy the paint, and you get what color you want, and you put the paint on, and then the paint dries, right? Just kind of like simple. You go to that paint store, and there are 10,000 shades of blue, all with their distinct color, identifier, and name. Paint is overwhelming for me. I just want the light blue. That's how I would say it. Light blue. Dark gray. Here's some, here's some colors that we came across. Light cyclone. Cyclone is a wind system over the ocean. I didn't know that was a color. Virtual sky, as opposed to the real sky. <laughs> and my favorite, wild dove dark shadow, <laughs> which must be different than the domesticated dove with the lighter shadow. So different shades of different colors, right, are, is kind of what I'm getting at. There's just books and books of these shades, and you bring home the samples, and you hold it up to something, and all of a sudden it looks different. Because maybe you thought this cream color was light, but then you hold it up to something that's actually lighter, like bright white, and it looks darker. Or maybe you thought this shade of navy blue, and I would just call it navy blue. I just think of light blue, navy blue, and blue. I don't know. I, I have three colors of blue as opposed to Sherman Williams, which has about 10,000 colors of blue. But I would hold up something that's like navy blue that I think is darker, and then you hold it up to something that's even darker than that, like, I don't know, maybe wild dove dark shadow, and all of a sudden that dark blue looks lighter. Now I might think, is that light blue? Is that the same blue that we looked at at home? You're holding it up to something different, and it looks different. And where I'm going with this 
is it's important for us to hold up our lives and to look at what we do with the backdrop of God. Who is Jesus and who are we? And what do we look at first? Because we can play the game that says, I'm better than that person, my neighbor swears more than I do. What's our standard and what do we compare ourselves to and what's important? What is good? Is good holding down a job? Is good what's in the Bible most of the time, not all the time? What is good and how do we measure our lives? That's why we want to look at God and Christ first. And these two weeks that we've been in, I've, I've kind of titled it First Things First. We want to look to the appropriate source of goodness to even measure what is good. What is light blue? What, what, we can kind of do the relative game, right? Well, it looks light when I hold it up over here, but when I hold it up over here against the garage, it looks like dark blue. What is, what is good? So this is going to be where we're at. We're going to continue in Colossians 1. You can go to that. Um, you can actually go to that third slide just to give a quick overview of where we've been last week and then going to finish up this week. And by the way, we just kind of turned the page from Philippians. Jerry finished that Philippians uh, series. Turned the page into Colossians, and Paul's got some good stuff in here for us to concentrate on. So as, if you weren't here last week, we went through verses 3 through 14. We're going to start in verse 15 today, so you can go ahead and take out your Bibles Get to that spot if you want on your smartphone app, whatever the case may be. It's right after Philippians where we've been for a while, kind of halfway through that first testament or the New Testament. Okay? And just as a reminder, there's a, there's a lot of books like this, not just Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, a lot of the epistles, 1 Timothy. They start out with a good, accurate picture of who God is. Let's look and see who God is. What has Jesus done? Who is Jesus? Why do we call him good? And then it moves a little bit more practical, right? Like, what is good Christian living in, in our context, in the context that it was written for? What are some institutions in which God has given us through the church, through the family, right? Like, how, through governments? Like, how do we actually work through a Tuesday afternoon and not just pontificate about who God is? It's a both and. And what we saw last week is the knowledge of God, a, an increase of knowledge of God, produces fruit, produces good work, produces good Christian living, and in that, you can actually increase your knowledge of God. There's this cycle, and we're excited about both and, not one or the other, growing in our faith and knowledge of God in the hope that God has given us through Jesus. We also talked a little bit about the order of putting our underwear on, then our pants, and we, I aired out a, a personal grievance about how people use the word sandwich. Okay, that's last week, and now we're moving on to this week. Verse 15 through verse 20. You can go to slide four. This is overwhelming. <laughs> this is all good, but this is overwhelming because we could spend a couple months here, and we're not going to, but I do want to read it. and want to pick out a couple things. There's a lot here. This, um, I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV uh, translation, the, the title of this particular section here is called The Preeminence of Christ. It's kind of the same way as saying the superiority of Christ, right? The supremacy of Christ, how Christ is superior to other things. We know what it means to be better than or superior. So let's read this and get a sense of what God has here for us today. I might emphasize a few things. 
but just listen, read along if you, if you wish. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Quick side note. There's discussion, and, and you, could go, you could go for 40 minutes on this, just what we've read. The firstborn of all creation does not mean Jesus was the first thing created. Firstborn in this context, and the Greek words, speak to how firstborns were treated in this culture, which means they have all authority over the inheritance. They have all, like, dominion, and they, they actually have ownership. The firstborn means ownership over all of the family inheritance. So it, it, that's kind of affirmed by verse 16, what I also read, for by him all things were created. Okay, for by him all things were created. Jesus has always been, as part of our triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, together as one before creation and all things were created by and for and through them. Okay, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that language again. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a lot there. I, I just kind of put a bullet list up here. We could go a full 40, 60 minutes on each of these bullet points, and we're not going to do that. I did want to emphasize a couple things here, and then we're going to get to the other verses. This is putting up a picture of who Christ is. Last week we ended with, let me just read it real quick, we ended with our hope in Christ's work. We ended with verse 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has done this for us. He has given us life. He has taken us from one kingdom and put us and transferred us into another kingdom. So who is this? Why do I care about someone's work if I don't know who that person is? This is a deep dive into who is Jesus. Is he a good teacher? Is he a laid-back, just kind of mountain man that wears sandals and talks to people? A lot of people, I mean, every historian that's worth their weight in their academic knowledge knows that Jesus was a historical human figure. The question is, who is Jesus? Is he a teacher? Is he a good teacher? Is he a liar? Who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? Let's sit a little bit in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
If you went to a class at the university, in high school, whatever the level, whatever the class, whatever the subject, and you get to that teacher, and they start talking about the subject matter, and they could know a lot, let's take physics. They talk about the laws of physics, and they know a lot, and they've studied, and they're a good teacher, and then they start to say this language, which, say, which says the physics and gravity and these things that hold together, I am holding them together. This law of gravity goes through me. I have gone before this. No longer a teacher. Big, bold truth statement there. Different claim. Moved out of the realm of teaching. Can you imagine if I started doing that right now? I'm not just trying to pick out a few things that are helpful for us. We come to God's word, and I start, like Jesus did in the temple, saying, these things have been fulfilled through me. And that's when he started to ruffle some feathers. Because he has no longer just said, I'm going to help you out with your life here by making it more pleasant and being a good teacher so you know more. Jesus is holding all things together, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be superior. If that's on an abstract of a college course that your teacher will be held up as superior in all things, we have no longer just engaged in a normal course. This is a different statement about Jesus. This is different. This is very different. Okay, so what does it mean in all things? All the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell in him. There's such an emphasis. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things? All things? Have, he has gone before all things? I can, I can maybe make a case for having that be palatable for the easy, good things when we have good marriages and, and helpful friendships and, and jobs that are secure. But all things? This is difficult to read sometimes because I know in this room and in my life, not all things are palatable. There's brokenness and there's, there's broken relationship and there's, there's death and there's COVID and there's depression and there's, there's a lot happening right now and throughout human history, certainly. So all things, he is holding all things together. What helps me with this is how this has been approached in the Old Testament, New Testament. Throughout the Bible, we see how God brings about all things brings about all things. And in fact, persecution in the church, if we look ahead, persecution in the church is difficult to think about. That actually sparks revival many times. So let's, let's look at one example. We're going to go way back. What's really helpful for me is looking at Genesis, looking at the story of Joseph when it says that God has brought Joseph through this story over decades. Let me just turn our attention to the story of Joseph real quick in the Old Testament. Um, if you haven't heard the story, it's, it's pretty simple, but it's easy for us to, to look at this in 2021 with an air-conditioned room and kind of read through, the, you know, read through the story of Joseph and not grasp what's actually going on over the, the timeline. Joseph, in the 32nd view, 
is hated by, by his brothers, taken out to be killed by some. Some of them don't want to kill him. Some of them do want to kill him. He ends up in a pit, like in a pit, like there's a pit. How many, what was the last time you were in a pit? Just like a, we're in an air-conditioned room, but he's in a pit. And then he's sold into slavery. And his father thinks he's dead. And then through God's working, he's not just like all of a sudden given food and water and shelter and air conditioning right away. He's actually brought through the paces of slavery. I mean, we're talking about children being sold into slavery. This still actually happens in, in our day and age. This is heavy. This is, all, do all things go through Christ? Does he hold all things together? Even Joseph in the pit? I mean, years go by after this, and God brings him to a place of power and a place of wisdom and a place of influence to save lives from the famine. That's kind of this, it's kind of this large-scale saving, but he also brings reconciliation to his brothers that wanted to kill him. So we can look at, I mean, this story goes by chapters and chapters in Genesis, it's helpful to, to read it actually all the way through, kind of in a shorter setting. So you see from start to finish, I mean, I can't even grasp the idea of being in a pit, much less everything that happens after that. And this is what happens in Genesis 50-20. 50-20, Genesis 50 is the last chapter in the book. We're kind of like winding down the story. He finally meets with his brothers, and they're... They're nervous that he's going to be upset with them and that he's going to want to take revenge on them. And he looks back on the whole thing and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Like, I'm not fooling myself. That wasn't an accident where all of you put me in the pit. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. There's a dual intentionality here, and that's one of the ways that I can only wrap my head around God being in control of and ordaining and meaning all things. All things? Even the hardest thing that comes to your mind right now in your life that you've ever experienced or your greatest fear? I mean, children being sold into slavery, that's a reality. That would be one of these Worst-case scenarios. He looks back on a story that that's happened. And again, I'm in the ESV. This translation says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same word, meant. Some translations are a little different. It is the same Hebrew word for them meaning evil and God meaning good. It is the same Hebrew word for evil, for them meaning evil and God meaning it for good. There is no, there is no plan B that God had to, oh, this happened and now I'm going to just use it over here. I'm going I'm to come up with uh, what's my strategy to, to make the best of this terrible situation. So this is helpful for me to see even the cross and for us to, as Christians, how, how do we believe the cross is good? There's a death. And, and I think it's helpful for us to see the preeminence, the superiority, 
the majesty of Christ, not just as a good teacher and some guy that died a long while ago, but when we read verse 15 through 20, and we see he is the firstborn of all creation. He is holding everything together. He is God. He is perfect. And, and, And let's look at how it starts. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So there's, a crea- there's like how everything starts is through Christ. He's there at the beginning. The crea- he, he's created. There's creator and there's creation. And these are two very different essences. These are two different natures. The creator creates us, the creation, birds, everything. And that creation, by the time we're done with verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What, why is there a cross? This has been the plan, and it is, in one sense, when we talk about worst-case scenario, something that's offensive, something that seems twisted, something that seems perverted. For the, creation of the, for the creator of the universe to take on flesh and be killed by his own creation, there's nothing more twisted and wrong than that. And God has that as good news. There's a dual intentionality here. What the Roman soldiers and what the... What the at the time, the religious leaders and the people meant for evil, God meant for good. The cross is not plan B. God is not up wringing his hands going, shoot, I had this good creation, and now people have sinned, and what do we do now? Jesus, you're, you go down in a little bit. We'll find the right time. You'll, we'll make this right somehow. What we mean for evil which is to rebel against God, which is to kill him, God means for good. This is a good 10,000-foot view of destruction and the broken world that we live in. Now, that's not all there is in life. I want to take a, a little step back here. We should be slow to lead with this difficult truth. We should be wise in how much mystery there still is. Let me read from Romans 11 and how we should sometimes approach this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We talked about this last week. We can't even wrap our head around everything that there is with God. How unsearchable are his judgments. God is unsearchable. There is a point where we will search out God in a good good manner. We will want to learn more about God and increase in our knowledge and faith and love and hope. But there is a part that is unsearchable. We aren't able to know how this all fits together. So this is sometimes kind of this conundrum, right? The more we learn about God, the more we realize there's unsearchable parts of him. It's like turning a corner. 
Like you see more, you see more of the path, but you realize there's more there. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. We can't get there. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things, this is difficult, all things, and in some sense, I'm comforted in Colossians at the end when it says, excuse me, it does say, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So we're not promised a timeline. We're not promised exactly when we'll be given the full knowledge of God, even in this lifetime. It might be in heaven. But we know there, there's, there's time and time again where God says, this is what I will bring about. And, and the world might have these intentions, and I have these intentions. This dual intentionality is the most helpful construct that I can even think of to wrap my head around these hard things. And why do we have to talk about these hard things? Well, because church is, is to be, be filled with God's spirit and to know that this world includes the hard things. We're in this difficult time. We talked about this last week between Christ coming, his first coming, death, resurrection, and then making all things new in his second coming. We still are filled with sin in the world, destruction. We have a broken system here and he is going before all things okay let's move on this helps me see who God is how he's in control because the alternative stings just as much sometimes like if we just have a God that isn't in control and, and it doesn't go before and doesn't have a good purpose for these difficult things where, where are we where are we? Let's go to slide five and start to walk through the gospel and how this starts. Because we've, we've just kind of described who is this God, and all I've wanted to pick out from those verses is he is in all things. He is in all things. He goes before all things, and all things go through him. So this is who Christ is. This is who Christ is. Now, who are we? This, this gets to, <laughs> it's uh, borderline comical, but not really. When we switch over to verse 21, it's like, you know, the creator of the universe just came in for the job interview or whatever. You see his resume, and it's, it's verse 15 through 20, and he's holding all things together. He's been there before the creation. He's reconciling all things through himself, and he's holding it all together. The, the infinitesimal atoms in this table, everything down to the molecular level, all things... He is created, and he's given it for his purpose and his glory. And then we walk in the room, and here's our little resume. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's like, what? There is not just Jesus, kind of the better hippie teacher, that's, that's more knowledgeable about God because he, he goes and meditates in the wilderness. And then us, we're just kind of like trying to be better. Just like not quite enough time in the wilderness to be like Jesus. 
This blows apart the chasm that there is between God and us. And it's helpful to know that. It stings, but it's helpful to know that because the solution involves the chasm. Okay, so it's good for us to know how good God is, and it's good for us to know, apart from God, how we were born is not good. And the reason I bring this up is because the Bible brings it up, and the reason we need to continue to bring it up is because the world does not bring it up. The solution to most of our problems in our culture is that we have had bad things done to us, and we need to eliminate those bad things, which I agree happen. But at our essence, we are born with a good nature, and we just need to get the right nurture. And the Bible says you're born with a broken nature, and God makes you a new creation. And nurture matters. We live in a fallen world where nurture hurts, and it affects our nature sometimes. And good, and good nurture helps and God is in all things. The good nurture, the good home, the bad nurture, the bad home. God is in all things. The good culture, the bad culture. God is in all things. God is in all things. So this is helpful for me because we're not just going to stop here. Man, it's been a little heavy today, a little heavier than last week. We need to know our chasm. This is gospel 101. God is good. We are not. What happens next? We, we got to go somewhere. We got to go somewhere. And sometimes the question not is, is posed, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do such bad things happen to such good people? And we got to put our thinking caps on. There's all kind of twisted categories. We, can, we just throw around, the, throw around these words and I, and, I, and I know what people are saying, but in, in, in the backdrop of Christ, in the backdrop of who God is, we need to know who we are. We come to the table unable to come to him, and I'm so excited about the next verse. You know, Colossians, this part of Colossians is so helpful for me because it just, I mean, I'm going to just spend a little bit of time in two more verses who is God? Who are we? What has God done? What do we do? We can spend the next 70 years together as a church figuring those things out. And that's what I feel God has us do in groups. In groups of people, whether it's a large setting, small setting, in the living room, one-on-one -on -one with coffee. Who is God? Who are we? What has God done? What do we do? And Colossians just gives us everything right here. Everything right here. Spent a lot of time on who is God. Who are we? Next slide. What has God done? What Christ did. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to do something. He is now reconciled. We know that word. Reconciled, like your checkbook's off. It's not matching up. Right? The, the, the amounts aren't correct. There's a debt, and you need to reconcile. You need to pay up. Now he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's important. He doesn't just get us off the hook and say, you get those sins for free. There's a debt to be paid to a perfect holy God, 
and Christ pays the debt. In his, the, the penalty for sin is death, and Christ pays the debt. In his body of flesh, by his death, in order to, those are really important words, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What good news is this? We've spent too much time talking about how good God is and how bad we are when we start, and now you're telling me in this one little verse, he has done this, he has walked the, the narrow road, he has gone to the cross for me, which is offensive in the case of judgment. In one way, we could say, have you ever had someone try to pay your debt and they're not in debt? It's just like, no, 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 that's like, I, I, I should pay that. Don't know, is there something in you that like doesn't like gifts? Because now, oh, no, 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 you didn't, you didn't do that. I, I should pay that back. Christ doesn't deserve the death. He takes the death. We do deserve the death. We are alleviated. There's this transfer. He gives us his goodness, which is holiness and blamelessness. He takes our badness, which is sin, and the penalty of sin, not just this thing called sin. He takes the penalty as well. We've done this perfect exchange and above reproach before him. He is now, we are now able to be before him. Okay, what Christ did is important. By his body, it's important to look at the cross and see how bloody it was and see how twisted it seems for the perfect creator to be killed by the creation. And God meant it for good. The most twisted story you could come up with, the perfect creator being killed by the creation, God meant all along for good. This helps me in some way see how do I approach the twistedness and brokenness in my life. Let's wrap up here with the last piece here, because like, what do we do with this? It feels like it's, it's overwhelming to see this mystery God's ways are not our ways. We see that, you know, we saw that in Romans 11. It's overwhelming. Like, why do we even, like, can't we just have that be God? And we don't go that deep into that. We realize there's a ceiling we're going to bump against. So why do we even go there and see how, how this might fit together? I do think, and I think it's biblical here, verse 23, what, what we do. If indeed you continue in the faith. This is all to prompt us to continue in our faith. There is a practical application to see the goodness of God. And we believe order matters. We believe first things first. We don't just start at the bottom with what we do. What do we do? Do we just try to swear less? Do we try to read our Bibles more? What do we do? Like the world is telling us what to do. Like take action, go. What, what cause are we for? Like what we need to do stuff. It is important. God has ordained us to move and act well as a church. But why? Who holds the power? Who enables us? How do we actually make lasting change to our non-believing friends, family members, like to even our own joy? We see first the nature of God. Who is God? Who are we without God? What has God done? What do we do? What do we do?
So let's finish here with verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, we got there by the end last, last week, the hope of the gospel, which we've already seen here as well, the hope of the gospel that's concrete, that's objective, it, it, it has to do with God's work that he's done, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So God is saying there are tangible ways that this gospel will come to other people through speaking, through community, through a hundred other ways, through prayer, through Christians being equipped to be the saints of the ministry. We are called to work and act. This is not an either or. And it's hard to strike a balance there's probably not a person on the planet that has the perfect balance. There might not be a church, a local church that has the perfect balance, but this is what we strive for. High view of God, much fruit, much work. And I think they go hand in hand. We saw that a little bit more last week. Just as a quick heads up, if indeed you continue in the faith, we know that our faith is given to us. It's an overflow of what God has done for us. These Greek words express no doubt in our assurance of faith. It's like in a, an expectation, like if we have saving faith, then there will be no doubt that we will continue in the faith. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Not shifting. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's end here. What does it mean to continue in the faith because of the hope of the gospel? I'm going to read it two different ways, one from last week, one from this week. It's all over the Bible. We just look up a verse, up a previous verse here, the hope of the gospel is in Christ's objective work. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's brought us into community with him. That chasm is being breached by him, through him, and for him. As we said last week, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, separation, and into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a transfer, there's a community, and from that, we go. From that, we share. From that, we live differently. High view of God, accurate view of us, what has Christ done to change that? What do we now do? First things first. I'm going to pray, and we'll close up here with some more worship. You can stand as I pray. God, give us... Well, give us your spirit. Give us your power. I pray that my words would fall flat and your spirit would move, God. And we would spend we would spend the next week, the next year, the next 
decades together, seeing what does it mean to look at you first. Who are you, God? I pray that we would know ourselves and who we used to be, God. I'm thankful so much for the baptism testimonies that talks about who, who we are before you and who we are after you, God. Change us. And I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your saving power. I thank you for this church that does act by your grace, that does bear fruit by your grace. Amen.